and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Good morning. If you guys want to make your way back to a seat, that'd be good. Awesome to see everybody kind of chatting with each other. I encourage you guys to pick those conversations up again when we're done here. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. So if you want to grab a Bible and go to Revelation chapter 4, that's where we'll be. Uh, A few things to share with you before we get there. Did you guys know that everybody on stage this morning for music was a volunteer? Um, Pretty awesome. Uh, Micah, who is our music pastor, worship pastor, uh, he and Larissa, Larissa gave birth to... Lydia Sue last night, and so she's itty bitty little gal. Let me make sure I get the the info right. Um, she is five pounds twelve point seven. Don't leave. Don't don't take that point seven away from her ounces, and eighteen inches long. Micah says she's pretty tiny, and Larissa is doing great. So that's pretty awesome news that uh, Lydia Sue is here with us. Um, very cool. If, if you're new or visiting with us this morning, really, really great to have you with us. My name's Kurt, uh, lead pastor here at the church, and then we have some other pastors. There's some deacons, there's some ushers, there's some elders. You've got different people around the church. If you have questions about Hilltop and what we're about, we, I encourage you to, uh, you can come up and bug me after the service. I'd love to chat with you about that. Uh, one of the things, if you come back, you, you, you join us this morning for worship, you say, hey, we want to give that another shot next week. When you come back next week, and this is information for everybody, really, when you come back next week, construct will have started on the parking lot project, okay? And so many of you have given to this. We prayed about this. The funds have come in. We're going to get this going. It starts next week. Uh, in fact, it'll start tomorrow. And so many of you that, that park over here, you're used to parking around Building A. Uh, that's all going to be closed off, and we'll ask you to use the west parking lot. There is a big parking lot over here, if you didn't know that. Um, it's right over here, and there's like, I forget how many spots in it, but there's a bunch of spots, and then we'll ask you to come up the walkway and come in this way. There'll be limited access to the other building. You'll be able to get in there for coffee and everything still. Um, and that construction project is, it should take uh, 10 or 11 weeks is what we have heard from the company. And so we'll be looking at a little bit of time where maybe your regular routines are a little disruptive uh, or disrupted. Be ready for that next week. When you come in, you probably won't get to park in the exact same spot. You maybe have to take a different path to the door, but we'll all still be here. Um, and then even when the construction project is done, the flow of the parking lot will be different. Um, there'll be uh, spots that are uh, handicapped and mobility issues. Uh, we're going to have some different spots for you to park in that are a little bit closer to the door. Um, there's going to be better sidewalks for you to get inside. Uh, the flow of traffic will be different, and then it'll also be a lot safer for our kids as they move between the two buildings. And so um, everything will be a little bit different, and then it's not going to be the same again when the construction project is done. Um, so just kind of be ready for that. Uh, if, you're, if you're like me and somebody kind of changes the way things are done, you go, how come that had to happen? Um, it's good in the long run, just trust me. Um, and so just be ready for that. Um, if, if you do have um, your parking and handicapped spots and you have disabilities and you're having a little bit of a hard time getting to the front door with the way that things are set up during construction, you can ask Tammy or Vern and 
and they will help you get into a better spot so that you can get in the front door, okay? Um, and maybe even a side door, we'll figure that out. Uh, the other thing to share with you, Legacy Christian Academy is a, is a uh, K through eight school that is starting up this year. Uh, Joe and Sarah Choate are, are founding members of that church and part of our church here. And uh, so they're having an open house, open house today. The old... Um, um, why can't I think of the Calvary, not Calvary Chapel, C5, the old C5 building on Snyder is the building that they're in. And so if you want to check out that school and kind of see what's going on, that's today from one to three. They're going to have some games, um, lunch and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to know what that school is about, you can check that out. Okay. That's that stuff. Uh, the other thing to share with you is I had a couple weeks off. Uh, Don was here and Don taught. If you guys were here, you know that Don did a really great job going through the last couple of chapters of second Peter. Um, I spent my time off doing uh, some projects that were long overdue at the house. Um, I did some hiking. I played some disc golf um, and then uh, also did a, a couple of projects up here. Um, I, 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 we had leftover flooring from our addition and for a long time I said, I will put that in the kitchen in the other building and everybody was like, yeah, right. Well, I did it. Um, so, so it's in there. And uh, uh, so did some projects and then last week I was out at Cowboys Rest Christian Camp. The, our middle schoolers were out there as well as another 40 or 50 middle schoolers from different parts of the state and I was able to go out there and and speak at their camp. Um, I've been out there as a counselor several times and it's really exhausting when you're a counselor. If, if, if you're in the room and you've done that, you know it, you're really tired by the end of the week. Um, as the speaker, I took naps. It was just awesome. All the kids were you know, doing all this stuff, getting all their energy out, playing games, and I laid down in front of a swamp cooler and fell asleep. It was wonderful. Um, but it was also a really good time sharing God's word with, uh, with students and seeing them kind of grab hold of truths that maybe they didn't understand before. Um, I, I love to be able to do that with with you, with students, with whoever else. I love to find those things myself. Uh, new truths about, deeper truths about God that maybe I didn't understand before. Um, and that's really what we're going to look at here in Revelation chapter uh, 4. As we look at these verses, um, uh, remind you of what's going on in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus has, he has died on the cross. He has paid for our sins. Um, his, his apostles watched this take place. John, uh, the apostle that's receiving this vision, was at the cross. Jesus spoke to him and entrusted the care of his mother to John. Um, John then, uh, three days later, ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty, and then Jesus appeared to him. And uh, over the period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to hundreds of eyewitnesses. Um, and then he commissioned his disciples. He told them that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and then uh, that they should wait for the Holy Spirit, though. Don't try and do that in your own strength. But then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit is given to the church. And then the church grows from that time forward. And um, they're, they're looking forward to Jesus's return. They're, they're just really excited that he is going to come back. And uh, then some of them lose their lives. Uh, and, and John is older at this point in time. And he, uh, a big question is, when is Jesus going to come back? And what's it going to look like? And so Jesus, he shows up to John and he gives him this vision. Um, and uh, when, we, when, we incur, when we encounter the question of when will Jesus come back, the scriptures repetitive, uh, they tell us over and over again, that's not the right question. It's not for you to know the seasons or uh, times that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but he does want us to trust him and be his witnesses. And so uh, th this is a big question for the church, though. When is Jesus going to come back and what's it going to look like? And so Jesus shows up to John in this vision and he gives him some information. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, it's, he, tells, he tells John to write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And so there's some information about what took place in the early church. And then there's some information about what's going on in the church's 
at that point in time. And that's what we studied in the seven churches of Revelation. And then at this point forward, we move into what will take place after this. And so as we go forward, one of the themes within Scripture is, is, is that God is gracious and he is loving, but he's also just. And in his... In his justice, sin has to be dealt with. And so that's one of the things that we're going to see in this book is that judgment is a big part of it, that God is going to judge sin. We know that God did judge sin once and for all, and then he took the consequences of it. His son Jesus died for the consequences of sin. That's his love and his grace for us, uh, the forgiveness that he offers us. And so we want to remember that as we look at this. And so now John, he's invited into the throne room of God in heaven. He gets an invitation to see what's going on in the throne room of God. Uh, other people like Ezekiel or Isaiah had these opportunities as well. And uh, what we're going to see in this is a, a, a really good reminder of who God is, of what God has accomplished, um, and uh, the devotion and trust that he deserves because of who he is and what he's done. So that's what we'll look at. Uh, if you've never read The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, I, I think it's one you should put in your reading list. But in that book, he says, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Um, and what's really good is that, that God has given us the correct information about who he is. We don't have to wonder. You don't have to guess. You don't have to hope you could know God. Uh, because he's, he's revealed himself to us. He's made himself known through, uh, through creation. And we can see his attributes through creation. And then he's made himself known through scripture. And he's revealed his character and his work to us through uh, men and women that he's given revelation and truth to. And then ultimately he revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus. And so we can know God. Um, and so as we go into this chapter and we look at this vision that, that John is given, he's brought into the throne room. Um, I wonder what you think about when you think of God. Um, when you imagine who God is, what, what enters your mind? Um, it's really important that we understand who he is. And I want to draw out some truths about him as we look at this passage. Let me pray and then we'll read it together. So, Father, this morning we come to you longing to know you. We thank you for the opportunity to know you. Um, God, each and every one of us has some understanding of who you are. Uh, we all have some de degree of uh, a grasp on your character and, and what you've done. And what I pray this morning is that as we look at this passage, you would grow us closer to you. That we would have a deeper knowledge and understanding of who you are. And from that knowledge and understanding of who you are, that our, our, uh, our lives would take a path that seeks to honor you. That the decisions that we make are done in a way that acknowledges who you are. And so I, I pray these things. I pray you grow, you grow each and every one of us closer to you this morning through the reading of your scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 4. I'll read the whole thing with you. It's just 11 verses. It says, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. 
Flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes all around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so John, he, he gets this, this image that only a few other people have really had the opportunity to be a part of. Um, individuals like Ezekiel and Isaiah, prophets from the Old Testament, they've been able to see these things. And a, a lot of the uh, imagery that's in the throne is consistent. There's some small differences, some nuances to what John sees, but he gets to go there. And, and so he's, he's writing about a period of, of things that are to take place in the future. It says, I looked, and they're in heaven. And when we think of heaven, that's God's dwelling place. There's an open door, and there's there's a loud voice like a trumpet. And so uh, the idea that it's like a trumpet, it, God's speaking loudly, but it's also like a royal announcement, right? So there's this trumpet and, and the king is about to speak. The king is about to reveal things. And so there's this royal announcement going on. And he says, come up and I'll show you the things that have to take place after this. And so these events are viewed as future. There's a couple of views within the church. Some people view these future events to be future of John. And some of them have taken place and we're waiting for some other ones. Uh, another view is that all of these things are yet to happen. That we look forward to when Jesus returns and everything from chapter 4 on in Revelation are things that are going to take place yet to be. They haven't taken place yet. I think there's some room for understanding that both of those things may be true. Um, as we look, as we go through these chapters, we're going to understand this as a viewpoint of future events, that these things haven't taken place yet, but they are things that are future. Um, but it says that he was immediately in the spirit, and so he has this place of special revelation, uh, very similar to what he says in Revelation 1.10, that uh, this is an opportunity for him to understand things and see things and be granted uh, an understanding of who God is that most of us don't get. And so he, he, he's writing these down, though. God wants him to see these so that you and I can understand it. And he says that there was a throne in heaven and someone seated on it. And the one seated on it had the appearance of jasper, which is clear like a diamond, and carnelian, which is red like a ruby. Um, and, and so these stones, it's interesting, these stones are the first and last stone on the high priest's breastplate. So in the Old Testament, there was a high priest, and this person was the intermediary between the nation of Israel and, and God. And his job was to do several things, but one of the most important things that he did was he offered sacrifice for the people. Uh, he also had to offer sacrifice for himself so that his sins would be covered 
then he would offer sacrifice for the people and then the entire nation so that their sin would be covered. Uh, He would go into God's dwelling place within the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood on the the Ark of the Covenant as a sign of their their sin being cleansed. And so uh, what we're reminded of here is that this person who represented a nation uh, before God and cleansed them before God, that this one sitting on the throne is the one who does that for everyone. He is the great high priest. If you know your Bible, in in Hebrews chapter 7, it describes the high priest that Jesus is. Uh, Hebrews has a lot to say about this, but he's he's a high priest not like the Mosaic priests under the Mosaic law, but he's he's a high priest like Melchizedek. And we meet him in Genesis, and Abraham worships him, and he gives uh, gives offering to him. And this high priest, Melchizedek, he's, he's, we're told that he's the king of Salem. And that word Salem in the Hebrew means peace. And so he is the king of peace. And so uh, we understand that this one sitting on the throne is a representative of that. He is, he is the king and the high priest of peace. He is the one who brings peace between us and God. That's what he does. And in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, For this is the kind of high priest that we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all while he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. And so we're reminded by these stones that we have a great high priest, a true and royal high priest. His name is Jesus. And that this one, this Jesus, has paid the cost of sin once and for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place and for our sins. He wiped them out forever. He yelled out from the cross that it is finished. It's paid in full. And so this is the high priest that we have, one without spot or blemish, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you know, it's not just the sin of the world. He took away my sin. He took away your sin. So these aren't just broad concepts, but they're personal. That God has died for you. He's died for me. This is the high priest that we have. And then it says that around this throne that he sits on, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. And so this throne's appearance was of great beauty and color. It's majesty beyond compare. The other thing that's really important, most people know the story of uh, the ark, um, Noah and the ark, and then the rainbow, right? You guys know that story. God creates humanity. Adam and Eve fall. Uh, A couple chapters and hundreds of years go by um, in the book of Genesis. And God looks down at creation and he looks at mankind. He says that the intention of his heart is evil all the time and I'm sorry that I made him. God is grieved by the way that his creation is treating each other. They've rejected God. They've rebelled against God and the, the and then the result of that is them harming each other and he looks down and he's grieved by it and so he says he's going to wipe them off the face of the earth and he looks at Noah and Noah finds favor. He finds grace with God. It wasn't Noah that, was be- that he was better or special. It was that God gave him grace. God f- found favor with Noah and he blessed him and he gave him directions and Noah was obedient obedient to those directions. And through Noah's obedience, humanity gets a restart. And God judges sin. 
And then the, the, the water recedes and the ark lands and Noah gets off the boat and he has some animals that he builds an ark, ark or not an ark, but an altar and uh, sacrifices to, to God and he recognizes God's forgiveness. He recognizes God's judgment of sin. He sees all these things. And then God makes a promise. He says it'll never flood the earth again. And then he says the sign of that promise is that he's going to put a bow in the sky. Now, what's really interesting is the, the, the Hebrew word for bow there is a war bow. God lays down his war bow. And the idea is that there's peace between God and humanity at that point in time. The other idea that's communicated is do you know which direction the bow points? bow points up, points towards heaven. And so one of the promises that is given to Noah is that God was going to take on the consequences of sin, that he would pay for the consequences of sin. Instead of flooding us with the consequences of sin, that he would provide someone who would take those consequences for us. That's someone we know to be Jesus. And so the bow around this rainbow that has an emerald hue to it, uh, we understand that this is a reminder that God promised that he would pay for sin. That he would take on the consequences of sin. And that he did so. Through this great high priest, this one who died and gave his life for us. And so we have these amazing reminders of who God is and just some stones and a, a bow. God gives us these kind of reminders. He reminds us that sin needs to be dealt with. He reminds us that sin is serious, that there's consequences for it. But he also reminds us of the promise that he would pay for those consequences and that he did so through his son Jesus. It goes on here in verse 4, and it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with, with golden crowns on their heads. We don't know about the identity of these elders for certain. There's three major views that different theologians have put out there. One is that they represent the raptured church who has been judged and rewarded. Within this view, uh, there's an understanding from the book of Thessalonians uh, that uh, when, when God returns, when Christ returns, there'll be a sound of a trumpet and the twinkling of, the, of an eye. He will catch up his believers. They will be with him in the clouds. They will be raptured. And then immediately after that, the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, which is more like an awards banquet, will take place and he'll reward people for the lives that they've lived um, in obedience to him. That will be a, a banquet of only believers. The other view is that they are angelic beings who have been given important responsibilities throughout time. And there certainly are angelic beings that have been given important responsibilities throughout time. We can see that in the scriptures. Uh, the third view is that they, all rep that they represent all of the redeemed throughout history. So this would be a combination of Old and New Testament believers who have been uh, sat in places of honor and they represent both Jewish and Gentile believers throughout time. Um, as we go forward, we're going to see that these, uh, these uh, I think the first view is the one that makes the most sense, though the third one is reasonable as well. Um, that it's, it's people who have been redeemed. It's not angelic beings, but it's people who have been redeemed and are now in heaven and have been rewarded for the lives that they've lived. Uh, one of the other phrases that happens here is he says that they've been dressed in white clothes. Now, notice they don't dress themselves, but they've been dressed in white clothes. And so this is indicating imputed righteousness. Now this uh, theological term, but it's really important within Christianity. This is something that's different from all other religions. 
And the doctrine of imputed righteousness, what it teaches is that we are given the righteousness of Jesus and no longer depend on our own efforts to live life as God has intended it. Uh, Christ's personal, whole, personal righteous is given over to us and, and accounted to who we are. Uh, from there, Christians are enabled to lay hold of Christ by faith, and the Father blots out their transgressions with his, with his Son's blood. He sees sin in them no longer, and instead of seeing sin in us, He sees Christ's righteousness imputed or given to us. We are then dead to the law as a covenant of works, and Christ has fulfilled them for us and in our stead. And instead of us working our way to God and trying to be right before him, cleaning ourselves up so that God might be happy with us, what this doctrine states is that when Christ died, he died in our place and for our sins. And then on top of that, who he is and what he's done has been laid on us. So our bank account was of debt and bankruptcy and Christ has filled it with his glory and riches. So we no longer find ourselves in debt, but we find ourselves possessors of the riches of God, not because we earned it or deserved it, because God gave it to us. So perhaps you've heard that phrase before, when Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place and for our sins. Imputed righteousness says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in our place and for our righteousness. He died in our place and for our sins, and when he rose, he did so in our place and for our righteousness, that we would be whole and live lives that honor God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we would do that on our own, but it's something that's given to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 30 and 31 that says, It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who became, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so we recognize that within Christianity, uh, there's a problem between us and God. That there's a distance. There's something in the way. We understand it to be sin. We've missed the mark. We've rebelled against God. There's a consequence for that rebellion. And someone has to pay for that consequence. What every other religion says is, buck up and pay it yourself. Work real hard and make yourself right with God. Maybe you could clean yourself up and God would be happy with you. What Christianity says is out of God's great love for us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to us and he didn't say clean yourself up. He said, let me wash you. Right? Remember when uh, the last, uh, the, at, uh, uh, right before the Last Supper, Jesus is hanging out with the disciples and he wants to, he tells Peter, let me wash you. Let me wash your feet. And Peter goes, I can't have you wash my feet. And Peter says, if you don't let me wash you, you then you can't have anything to do with me. And Peter says, then wash all of me. The idea here is that we don't cleanse ourselves. God cleanses us. And it's through the work of Jesus that that takes place. And so we have nothing to brag about, but we do have a God to boast about. Because he is the God of justice, but he's also the God of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And that's how we met Jesus. And so there's this doctrine of imputed righteousness that I do not make myself right with God, but Christ has made me right and I, I work from freedom, not for it. I operate from a place of freedom, not for a place of freedom. Christ has granted my freedom, and now I live from it. 
The other thing that shows up here is this doctrine of rewards. It says that they have golden crowns on their head. There's two different crowns that are mentioned. One has to do with royalty uh, in the scriptures. The other one, this Stephanos crown, has, has to do with rewards for actions taken. And so what the doctrine of rewards teaches is that while salvation is a gift, there are rewards given for faithfulness in Christian life and loss of rewards for unfaithfulness. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about those who will make it into heaven, but as through fire, that they, their works are not gold or silver, but their works are wood and straw and they burn up. And so there's, there's this idea that while salvation is a gift, re rewards are given for faithfulness in Christian life and loss of rewards for unfaithfulness. We serve the Lord out of love and for God's glory. It is God's grace and power that allow us to serve him. We, we don't try and do this in our own strength. Remember, I just said it's imputed righteousness. We, we, we live from God's freedom, not for it. We're in a place where God's spirit empowers us. We're not trying in our own efforts. Instead, we're paying attention to what God is laying in front of us and walking out the good works that he's already prepared beforehand. So it's his grace and his power that allow us to serve him. But willingness derived from submitting to the Holy Spirit's will is rewarded at the Bema seat of Christ. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 14 or 2 Corinthians chapter 5. But you have to understand this. Willingness derived from submitting to the Holy Spirit's will is rewarded by Christ. That's what these crowns are. It's a statement of you, you allowed the Spirit of God to lead you. You didn't call the shots. You didn't go for the original lie that you know better than God. But instead you allow the Spirit of God to lead you. You're paying attention. You're listening. You believe, Ephesians 2, that you are Christ's masterpiece and he has laid out good works ahead of time that you might walk in them. And then you're asking God when you wake up in the morning, you're saying, God, what, what are the good works you have for me today? How are you going to have me bless my wife? There's people that I'm interacting with every day. How are you going to have me bless my wife? How will you have me bless my children? I'm headed to work. How are you going to have me bless my coworkers? What, what good do you want me to do today, God? And then as the Spirit shows you what good he wants you to do that day, you stay submitted to his leading and you walk it out. And he says that there's a reward for that. Paul draws strongly on this doctrine of rewards in 1 Thessalonians. He mentions it in every chapter of the book. And get this, the final words of Revelation are, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Those are the final words of the Bible. That Jesus is coming, that his reward is with him. And then he wants to record or reward every person according to what we have done. And the question of what we have done is not how much good did I do in my own ability? How, was I better than you? Was I, was I uh, more moral than you? Did I have better ethics than you? Did I, did I use my money more wisely than you? That's not the point. The point is in comparison between each other. The point is, will I allow... What Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 to be true of me, he said, take up your cross daily. Die the death of a rebel every day. Every morning when you wake up, recognize that there's a spark of rebellion in your flesh. And if you allow that spark of rebellion to go unchecked, it will light off and it will have the better of you. But each day when you wake up, you need to recognize that this spark of rebellion against God is in you. And so you take up your cross and you say, I will die the death of a rebel. And I don't call the shots. Instead, I have a Lord and master who securely possesses me, knows what is best for me, and I long to follow his lead. So God, show me what you'd have me do today. It says that there's reward for being submissive to him like that. 
And so what that should do for us is it should give us proper motivation. We should be motivated by the joy and the reward of seeing Jesus face to face and him saying, well done. You lived in light of eternity. You didn't just live for temporal things and temporal pleasures. But you saw the bigger picture. You saw the purpose that God has for you, that you were created in his image, and that his goodness is intended to flow through you to the people around you. And the only way that you can do that is if you're submitted to his lead and allow his spirit to empower you. You'll never do it any other way. And there's reward for that. And then we get a little bit more of who God is here in verse 5. It says, Flashings of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder came from the throne. So God's power and sovereignty are on display. Uh, his, his almighty power. I don't know if you've ever thrown a lightning bolt. I've maybe thrown a couple with my eyes at my children over the years. But they usually deserve it. But... Uh, his power, his, his creative ability, his, his uniqueness, the uncreated one who made everything, everything that you've ever seen or thought about or touched or wondered about, God made it. And so his power is on display, his sovereignty, the fact that eternity is in his hands, but so is today. Your eternity is in his hands, but so is what happens to you tomorrow. He's got you. And then it says that there were seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, these lampstands of the seven churches, which are the seven spirits of God. And we understand that to be the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that's interesting is in this image of the throne, you see the Father, you see the Son, and you see the Holy Spirit. The Trinity of God is on display here. And it says something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. And this has a reminder of the perfection and brilliance of God, that he is perfect. There's no one like him. In fact, when Moses asks, you know, you're giving me this impossible task to go tell the people that they're supposed to leave Egypt, who should I say is sending me? And he says, tell them, I am that I am is sending you. Tell them that the one who is has nothing that you can compare him to is sending you. I just am that I am. You can't compare me to a sunset. You can't compare, like you could try, but it's only just a teeny little bit. I'm, he's saying I'm bigger and grander and better, more awesome than anything. So his perfection and brilliance are on display. And this vision of the throne, it's similar to what Ezekiel and Isaiah see. And so when you see this consistency in the scriptures between what Ezekiel, Isaiah, and now John see, it's important to remember that God's character is immutable and unchanging. It's not, that, it's not just that God is unchanging. It's that he would never change. It's that he can't change. His character is settled. Uh, he, he was, he is, and he is to come. Uh, he's not moody, tired, or able to be manipulated. He's not going to wake up one day and say, I am done with these people. I, I just can't stand you anymore. Right? Covenant done, relationship over, I'm out. That's not God. He is committed. He is settled. He is faithful. He won't give up on us. He won't leave us. He continues to pursue us. Even those who push back over and over and over again, he loves them and will not stop pursuing them. He's settled. He can be relied upon. And he's completely good. He's trustworthy, faithful, and all of his promises will come to pass. 
It's important to remember that. As things around you change, as your circumstances change, as difficulties come and go in your life, none of those are an indication that God has given up on you. None of those are an indication that he's changed his mind. He loves you and he'll never stop. So we get these reminders of who God is. Now this next part, it says, Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face of a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes all around and inside. Uh, there's several different views on what these four living creatures are. Uh, whatever's presented, a few things are clear. They're unique, they inhabit uh, God's throne room, and they worship him for his holiness, power, and eternal nature. Uh, when, when Ezekiel sees the throne of God, it's actually like a mobile throne, it's kind of like a chariot. Um, and these, these, these same beings are there and they use the six wings to cover God. Ezekiel doesn't actually see God but he sees the angels and the splendor of these, uh, these beings. And the point behind their splendor is not so that you would worship them. Don't be silly. The point behind their splendor is to remind you of who God is. Um, and so uh, the, the humankind this face like a man is the idea that humankind is the head of creation. We have delegated authority from God in Genesis to steward his creation well. Uh, humanity is noted for intelligence. Believe it or not, that's what we're noted for. Um, and, and when you think about the created order, right? Like humans consider things that animals don't. If you ever have a conversation about heaven with your dog, let me know. Um, they don't consider it. Uh, they don't consider morality. Like you're, you're not going to sit down with your dog and go, let me teach you a biblical sexual ethic. Your dog doesn't care. Um, and it's not going to learn it. But humans consider these things, right? Uh, we're known for our intelligence, being created in the image of God. The lion is the chief of wild animals and noted for ferocity. The ox is the chief of domesticated animals and noted for strength. And the eagle is the chief of birds, noted for freedom. Fish aren't mentioned because they're disgusting. No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, it's interesting that the Hebrew people, they, they did not like the sea. Uh, they were not a seafaring people. And so rarely in their imagery do you get something from the sea unless it's chaos or disorder. Um, but that's a total side note. I apologize. Um, the church fathers link these attributes to the gospels in various ways. The view of Augustine was the most, is the most prominent. The lion being linked with Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. The ox being linked with the gospel of Luke. The man being linked with the gospel of Mark and the eagle with the Gospel of John. Uh, when you look at it, there were different church fathers that held different views, but the one of Augustine is the one that is the most prominent. Uh, the point in doing this is so that all of the attributes, uh, the ones that we would understand as worth having, flow from Jesus, and we are recipients of them and not their origin. Right? So, intelligence and wisdom flow from God. Uh, ferocity for the right things flows from God. Uh, ferocity towards, like, you know, God hates sin. And he, he, he hates it. And the reason he hates it and the reason he uh, has fiery eyes towards it is the same reason why when we see other people hurt each other, we go, that's not best. Um, God's actually instilled that in us that, that when we see people hurt each other, we go, that, that's not a good idea. Uh, we, sh we probably shouldn't hurt each other, but instead we should find ways to bless each other. And so that's why God has ferocity towards sin. The ox uh, and, and this strength, we understand that all true strength and power flows from God. Our own abilities maybe seem like they're wonderful at times, but without God, they will always fall short. Everyone falls short of the glory of God and their own abilities and strength. 
And this freedom, we understand that Jesus is the one who gives us freedom. That he created us in freedom. He gave us free, God gave us gave humanity freedom within the garden to do anything except for determine for themselves what is truth and what is false. That we would not turn anywhere other than him for what is right and what is wrong. We have freedom to do almost anything else except say, God, we know better than you. And that's what we did. And so because of that, we've been enslaved to sin, but it's through Christ that we are then freed from that enslavement. He pays the redemption price of our souls and allows us to be free once more. Any freedom that you experience, true freedom that you experience is because Christ has bought it for you. And so because of that, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And so it's said three times to emphasize the uniqueness and completeness of God. Uh, when, you th when you hear that word holy, you have to think unique and complete. One of a kind and in need of nothing. That's God. One of a kind and in need of nothing. Holy, holy, holy. He says that he is our Lord, our master and guardian. That word Lord also means secure possessor, that he has purchased us with his blood and no one, no one can snatch us away from him. He is God. There are no other gods before him. We might make false little gods out of things that we worship in creation, but none of those things are truly God. And he is the Almighty, the source of all power, who was, who is, and who is to come. He is eternal and uncreated. They worship him for this. It says in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, that means recognition or honor, that means value, and thanks, which means gratitude to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive. You rightfully deserve glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. And so uh, these creatures, they remind us of the glory of God. They point us to the glory of God and they lead us to our knees to worship God for who he is, to give him recognition for the God that he is, to value him above everything else and to have gratitude for the one who has paid the redemption cost of our souls. He is both Lord and God. He rightfully deserves honor, glory, and power because he created everything. Do you know that the most creative people you've ever met, they don't create anything new? They take what God has created and maybe change it a little bit, but they can't create something new. He is the only one that out of nothing created everything. And so he deserves the glory that we should give him. And so the worship of God in his heavenly throne room includes these 24 elders giving glory, honor, and power as they acknowledge God as their creator and the sustainer of the universe. He is the one who holds all things together. That early Christian hymn that Paul records in first, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus, that he is the one who holds everything together. He is preeminent, he is before all things, and all things were created for him. It's a reminder of that. And so what being in God's throne room does is it reminds us of who God is. He's holy. He is unique and complete. He's righteous. What he does and what he says and what he brings about is always best. He's sovereign. He holds the past, the present, and the future in his hands. And not just in a vague sense, but in the terms of your life. 
He's faithful and unchanging. He is gracious and he loves to give gifts and rewards to those who honor him by submitting their lives to his rulership. He's the source of all wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He's our Savior. He's our righteousness. He is worthy of honor and praise. And so, as you get taken into the throne room with John, and these descriptions are given of God, and how he longs to bless us, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, is do I know him? Do you, do you know this God? And I, I don't mean just like have information about him. I mean, have you experienced the goodness of salvation? Do you know what it is to fight against God? To have the pattern of your life to be to slap him in the face? And for him to pursue you and forgive you? Do you know what it is to be raised up and made whole again? To be given a new identity, become a new person, a new creation, have a new heart. To live a totally different life than you used to live. Not a perfect life. Do you know God doesn't expect you to be perfect? He just expects you to trust Him. And in the areas where He reveals you're not quite trusting Him, to grow in that trust. He's gracious. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's long-suffering. Do you know Him? If you do know Him, do you trust Him? Would you be willing to make a commitment for the rest of your life that when you wake up in the morning, you'll say, God, I want to spend this day with you. I want to live this day in submission to you. I want to live this day in a way that honors you. I want to live this day in a way that, that is filled with your presence and your power. I mean, I've tasted your goodness. Why, why on earth would I go somewhere else? I want to live this day with you. I trust you. What's that you say? You want me to, you want me to use my money differently. I'm being selfish with it. Okay, God, show me. Show me how to be selfless with my finances. What's that you say, God? I'm too demanding of my wife and I, I, I place burdens on her that only you could fulfill. Okay. Will you show me how to find wholeness in you so I can bless her instead of be demanding of her? What's that you say, God? I'm, I'm trying to live vicariously through my children. I'm trying to make them things that I wish I could have been instead of just trusting that you have their path in mind. What'd you say, God? I care too much about the opinions of people. I do what I do not because I, I trust you, but because I'm, I'm worried about what others will say or think about me. <laughs> Let me live in freedom. You show me how to live in freedom. What'd you say, God? I'm not using my time the best. Are you kidding me? There's not eternal value and TV shows. I, I use my time selfishly. I use it for my own comfort. I'm sorry. Will you show me how to use my time for your glory and the benefit of others? Do you trust him? Would you ask him those questions? 
Would you let his voice speak to you? Do you allow him to lead you? God, do I allow you to lead me? Or, or do I just wander through my days kind of doing what I'm doing without a whole lot of thought? Do you ever just enjoy and marvel who God is? Do you ever just sit back in awe of him? you ever just think that everything that you've ever seen or touched or anything, he made it? Maybe somebody formed it into something else, but he made it. And not just stuff, but like he made your heart. You ever just sit and wonder, like God made my heart. Uh, you, you go into a science class and you see the details of a cell and you say, he made that. You ever just look at him and go, I have been fighting against him for so long. And I've pushed at him over and over again. And if somebody pushed me the way I pushed God, I'd be out of here. But he keeps on coming after me. You ever just marvel at who he is and how he loves you? Do you worship him with song and word and thought and deed? Uh, interesting thing, Ephesians chapter 5 says that when we're filled with the Spirit that will minister to ourselves and each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That, that worship of God through song is something that delights Him and it changes us. It's not just songs. Do your words honor Him? Do your thoughts and your deeds, the way that you conduct your life, is it about honoring Him? Do you look forward to His return? Ever looked around this world and thought... There's got to be something better. There is. He's coming. I can't wait. Do you long to see his face and receive the full reward of knowing him? Does who he is and what he promises, do those things motivate the direction of your life? Do those things motivate the direction of my life? Am I really distractible? We're people. We're really distractible. He compares us to sheep in the scriptures. We're really distractible. So the question is, would we keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, this Jesus, who has saved us and he died in our place and for our sins and then he rose in our place and for our righteousness. He indwells us with his spirit. He empowers us with his spirit. He guides us to love and to live lives that are markedly different than who we used to be. Do you know him? Let me pray with you. Father, thank you so much that you've made yourself known. Thank you that through creation and the prophets and your desire to reach down to us, you, you have made yourself known. Thank you for the promises of a Messiah who would come and take away the sin of the world. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your forgiveness. And we thank you for your justice. Sin has to be dealt with, and if we had to pay for it ourselves, we'd be in a heap of trouble. And that's why we need your son Jesus, because he has saved us from that. He has saved us from condemnation. And there's no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because our sin has been wiped away. God, I pray that each person in this room knows you that way.
They know who your son is. They know what Jesus has done for them. They know the love of the Father. We long for that love. The acceptance that comes through our maker. And you've given it to us. So we want to worship you right now. Not just with the song, but with the pattern of our lives. For who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.